1: The best things are the ones that you are doing because you actually like doing them and you enjoy the process and and no one can stop you from it.
0: I believe that the opposite of depression, it's not happiness, it's purpose. I believe that every single person has something unique to contribute to the world. And that's why I wanted to create a show called Don't Keep Your Day Job. Don't Keep Your Day Job is about... Figuring out what it is that you were here to do in this world that only you can do to make the world more whole, more beautiful, and to stop selling yourself short, and to stop sitting it out, and to figure out how to take this thing you love, whether it's art or music, or screenwriting, or dance, or baking. And how do you weave this thing that you love into a life that you get to contribute, that you get to do what you love full-time because it's not just about business. It's about contribution. It's about meaning. That is what we seek. That is what we truly want. And you absolutely are here to serve the world. And I want to help you figure out Just how much value you have inside of you. And every single week, we're going to be talking to people who have something to add to help you get out of your own way, to help you be more successful, to help you be the truest expression of you. My name is Kathy Heller. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's dive in. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. So yesterday was very intense, especially living in Los Angeles. Because of the death of Kobe Bryant, there was a lot of people um, who really felt that really intensely. In L.A., he was kind of like Batman, like he was like a superhero. And he was a complicated person, and people have different feelings about who he was. But what I will say is that it is always a reminder when somebody dies that this is not a dress rehearsal. And especially when someone is as big of a person in terms of they're larger than life and they seem invincible, you know, and something like that happens, it really smacks you in the face. And what's fascinating is that hours before he died, I had written on Instagram, this is not your practice life. And I really and truly want us all to get that we need to show up. See, here's the thing. We've all been through so much pain. And what happens when you've gone through really serious stuff is that a part of you decides to stop living because you don't want to get hurt again. So we tell ourselves, oh, I know what I'll do. I won't dream. I won't want anything. I won't love too deeply. And we build walls around our heart. We keep ourselves safe and we miss out on so much because life was meant to be lived. It's not meant for scrolling your phone. And yeah, it's scary to dream. It's scary to be messy. It's scary to love someone. It's scary to trust. It's scary to put yourself out there to try. But while you may be afraid, you also have so much courage and you forget the wonder that can happen and the magic that the universe sends our way when we take those brave steps. So I want to say to you, Every day should be a reminder not to put things off. But when we see that somebody dies like that, it's another reminder not to put things off that we truly want to do, not to hold back the things we really want to say and and to stop telling ourselves that we don't have what it takes because that's not true. Instead of telling yourself, who are you to do this? You should be saying, who are you not to do this? So my question to you is, what would you do this week if you didn't have to be perfect? What would you do this week if you didn't have to get everyone's approval? what would you post? What would you say? What would you make? Let's live. Let's live and let's show up for this beautiful, precious gift of life. All right. Well, as you guys know, I'm doing this program called Made to Do This. The doors are closed and we just had our first session last night and it's going to be such a beautiful three months with this incredible group of souls. But for those of you who didn't join that program and want to work with me, there is one other thing coming up that you might be really excited about. So you guys have heard I do these retreats at my home. Well, we're making the glow retreat even more special the next time we're adding a day. So instead of it being a Sunday night through a Tuesday night, we're now having it be Sunday night through Wednesday. Wednesday afternoon. And so we're adding a day. I think it's going to be really, really beautiful. And the next one is going to start March 8th. We only take 18 women, um, sorry guys eventually you'll be hearing about a live event that I'm doing for men and women but for right now it is a women-only event we only have 18 spots so if you want to apply for the retreat you can find the link in my Instagram bio which is at kathy.heller or you can find the link in the show notes here we'll be taking applications for the next two weeks so that's February 9th um, at that point we'll let everybody who has been accepted know that they're invited to join the program and uh, the program will be taking place March 8th at my home Los Angeles, March 8th through the 11th. If you want to join me for that, it's such a special, unforgettable, amazing, amazing experience. We go really deep. We connect. we, We really work on some of the things that are in the way inside internally so we can really help that wounded inner child to heal. It's very healing. It's very transformative. But then we really get into it. But then we really do a deep dive on your business. And by the end, you will be walking away with a plan for your business of what actions you're going to take and what are the most important things to do to really start to sell your service, your product, what you're creating and really start to build an audience and to do it in a way that feels filled with integrity. It is really a comprehensive, incredible retreat that helps you heal and get some really deep transformative breakthroughs and also to build your business in a way that is unbelievable. We have incredible testimonials. If you want to join me, the application is open through February 9th. You can find the application in my Instagram bio at kathy.heller. And you can also find the application in our Facebook group, the Don't Keep Reading Up Facebook group. You can also find the link to the application in the show notes for this episode. Okay, so on today's show we have someone that many of you probably know. His name is Ryan Holiday. He's the best-selling author of 10 books. He's a media strategist, blogger, a writer and such a generous, wise human being. Some of his incredible books include The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, and his latest book Stillness is the Key. And we're going to talk about all these books, but you should definitely go grab yourself a copy. He also has two daily podcasts, The Daily Stoic and The Daily Dad. If it weren't enough that he's a best-selling author and a super successful blog Blogger, Ryan has a creative advisory firm called Brass Check, which has advised clients like Google, best selling authors like Tony Robbins and Tim Ferriss, chart topping musicians, leading media brands, and so many more. And he just continues to make masterpiece after masterpiece. And it's because he's all about the process. I can't wait for you guys to hear this one. So without further ado, please welcome the one and only Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday, thank you so Hi. much for coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: I just want you to know, I have friends who are friends with you, and the people in this community, people who are authors and podcasters, are so impressed and proud of you because you are doing so well and you have earned it. But I don't think everyone knows the story of like, how the heck you even started. So could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, it was sort of a, a weird story, and it, it kind of took a while to get going. So I, I dropped out of college when I was 19 to be a book. <laughs> research assistant, for a really great writer named Robert Green. And then I was also a marketer and I worked with a bunch of authors. And then I ended up at a company called American Apparel. So I kind of had these two tracks. I was kind of learning how to write and then over here, I was learning um, sort of marketing and sales and, and how to be an entrepreneur. And it wasn't until, you know, five or six years after all of that, that those things came together with my own projects and, and my, my first book. So I kind of knew I always wanted to be a writer, but I, I really didn't know how or where to start. And so it was kind of a process of doing all these seemingly unrelated things that eventually kind of came together. Into what has become my career as an author.
0: Awesome. When you started, you started with a blog, correct? Yes. The first thing. Okay. So what was the first thing that was dying to get out of you that was like, I have to say this thing that motivated you to start a blog?
1: Well, I was actually—I th- was thinking about this the other day. So I—I always remembered that I, I always—I I remember I started a blog sort of right after I graduated from high school, and I thought like I want to be—I want to write, I want to be a blogger. So I started that, and then uh, I, I saw a friend of mine from middle school not long ago, and he reminded me that we'd actually started a Sacramento Kings fan site. When we were in middle school, so the first thing I ever wrote I was just a big basketball fan, and I just wanted to, I just wanted to do that. I just wanted to write about things that I was interested in and so depending on the start date, you know I wrote for a very long time for free on the internet while I had a day job, sort of just putting in in my hours and I remember I would hear about you know it's like a comedian would say like I, I did comedy for eight years before I ever got paid for it or something, and I remember thinking like, "That's insane! How could a person ever do that?" Right. But you know, if you, if you start from my first blog, I guess uh, it'd be like six or seven years from oh my God, high school to my first book deal, which was the first time I was ever paid for anything that I wrote. So it was it was a long time and a lot of dues, but I I don't think I would have been better served had that happened earlier.
0: Yeah. That's really cool. And my husband uh, recently stopped working, but he was vice president of Fox Sports. So there's a lot of basketball in this (laughs) house. So was the very first book, The Obstacle of the Way?
1: No, no, that was actually my third book. So I wrote a book in 2011 that was sort of about how fake news is made and how media manipulation happens.
0: No, you Um, didn't.
1: Yes, I did. You wrote that in
0: 2011. You knew that?
1: Uh, yes, uh, nobody, nobody really believed me. And so the book did not do super well. Um, I mean, dead. it came out, it it was controversial and, and it got a lot of attention, but in a weird way. Like, so when, when my first book came out, you know, I got a, a fairly large book deal for it and, and there was sort of all sorts of expectations. And that was like, for me, it was like, I've arrived. This is going to be everything I wanted. And actually, it kind of struggled a little bit. So it wasn't actually until The Obstacle is the Way, which I sold it as my second, but it came out as my third book. Like, I actually ended up taking less money for the obstacles of the way than I did for my first book. So, you can sometimes think like, wow. "Oh, I've arrived. It's only an upward trajectory from here." And even within that it can take longer. And then the funny thing about the obstacles of the way is that, you know, for the first 7 or 8 months that it was out, it it like hardly blew the doors off. So, it always takes longer than you expect.
0: Well, you're very generous because you just keep trying to tell a piece of a story and then show people how that could be something that they can learn to stay, stay with it. And you're very sweet to to sort of talk about all of the struggle behind it. So it's not just looks like this glossy thing. So first of all, that is amazing that you wrote a book in 2011 about the news. That wasn't the conversation on the street in 2011, but you knew that. So that's crazy to me. Okay. But this book, the obstacle is the way definitely was the first book I really knew about with you And the reason I wanted to talk about it is because it is so much of the story, right? Like where everyone who's listening to this show right now feels as though the obstacle is the thing that's the problem, right? We've all had our hearts broken in a million pieces, but tell us how we turn those obstacles into our advantage.
1: So I've always been fascinated with Stoic philosophy. It's sort of the the thing that sort of helped me through difficult times. It's it's what I was obsessed with. Um, It was what I was spending all my time reading about. And so I, I wanted to write a book about it. And- and because I hadn't graduated from college, because I don't speak Greek or Latin, I was in no way equipped to write the sort of book that, you know, other people were writing about this topic. And so one argument would be like, oh, this is a huge disadvantage. You're totally screwed. This isn't going to work. No one will publish it. And, and actually, it, it turned out that all those things were advantages if I chose to let them be. And so deciding to write a book for regular people like myself like it's interesting one of the sort of knocks on the book was like oh this is ancient philosophy but it's just illustrating it with you know stories from sports and popular culture and you know like the history of business and it's like sure if you're an academic those things are negative but if you're a regular person that's like the only way you'll understand the topic and so right I think basically the premise of the book, it comes from a quote from Marcus Aurelius. He says, you know, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. And so basically at the core of philosophy is like, we don't control when we were born. We don't control where we were born. We don't control the economy. We don't control what other people think. We don't control basically everything outside of us, but we always control sort of what we do with that. How We control how we respond. We control how we decide to be within that framework. And so the argument of that book, and then what I think that book proves is that like you you just try to make the best out of whatever you happen to have in front of you. And 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 I think that's ultimately why it works.
0: All of it, just all of it. So good. Could you maybe give us a couple examples of how people like Amelia Earhart or John Rockefeller made their struggles their strength?
1: Yeah, so one of my favorite stories is actually the story of Amelia Earhart in the book. Like, I think people, you know, people forget how hard it is to create change in the world. And so there's this, you know, Amelia Earhart is this super talented pilot, she's amazing. But, in the 1920s, when, when women only like recently even begun to legally vote, no is lining up to give a talented female uh, pilot a you know a break and so she's at home one day she's actually had to take a job as a social worker because she can't make a living as a pilot, and she gets this call there is a rich donor who's willing to fund a female transatlantic flight and so you might think, oh, this is awesome, but that's not how the world works. The offer was. It was like basically a publicity stunt. Like Amelia Earhart wasn't going to be the pilot, she wasn't going to be the co-pilot. She was going to be basically the navigator. And so, in one sense, this is a totally demeaning, insulting offer. Like she's being told, like, sure, you're going to do this, but it's going to be on our terms, and it's not going to be, you know, the way that it should be. And so, I think especially now, like if you were to sort of present that as an opportunity to someone, they'd be like, you know, get that out of my face. Like, how dare you? I've never been so insulted in my life. But what Amelia Earhart said to this is like, yes, like, I don't care. Let's do it. And and so she ends up doing it. It's uh, hardly the dream that she would have had for herself. But in saying yes to this, in sort of jamming her foot in the door and refusing to take it out, she ends up sort of building the fame the and the and the platform that lets her very quickly then do the first uh, female solo transatlantic flight. And so what a big part of Stoicism, a big part of the book is sort of accepting reality unflinchingly on its own terms, not seeing the world as you want it to be, but seeing the world as it is. There's this, this phrase in Stoicism called amor fati, which means like a love of fate. So instead of complaining about, instead of being mad about, instead of You know, wallowing in how unfair things are. It's accepting them as they are and then setting out to focus all of your energy on how you can change that or work within that system to get it closer to where you want it to go. And so it it, it would sort of paradoxical about it is you're kind of resigning yourself, but then also embracing where you have agency at the same time, which is hard for people to do. But I think when you really look at the people you admire, who's accomplished incredible things, that that's what they have in common.
0: Yeah, it's so good. My grandma, who is an immigrant and grew up on the Lower East Side, she used to say life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you deal with it. Totally. I've heard that my whole life, but I never really got maybe where that comes from or I and mean, you're explaining it so well. But people have a really hard time trusting the process and letting go of resistance to what's been handed to them. And then they just look at these cards they've been dealt and they're like, oh, no, oh, no. So, you know, you're talking to people about this all the time. How do we overcome that resistance and, like, try to find the beauty in what's been laid out?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people, we we tend to be very results-oriented. And so at the core of Stoicism, Epictetus, one of the Stoic philosophers, says like your first job in life is to sort of separate things into two buckets, like what's in your control and what's not in your control, sort of what's up to you and what's not up to you. So as an example with with like books, like um, what you control is what you write. You know, you control how much effort you put into it. You control how vulnerable you get. You control all the parts that go into it. What you don't control is whether a publisher accepts it or not. You don't control whether the New York Times likes it or not. You don't control whether it's a hit on day one or whether it takes 50 years for people to come around and see what you're talking about. And so what that means to me is that any energy that you are spending, caring about, Or worrying about or taking personally those parts that are outside of your control is actually removing potential energy or inputs that could be directed at what you do control. So, with my books, all I care about is like the writing, all I care about is the process. And then obviously, I care about the energy that I put into marketing, but I don't, I try not to be like, you know, refreshing Amazon. I try not to read the reviews. Like you you have to focus on on what Nick Saban calls the process, which is like just do your job and the immediate task in front of you. And and weirdly, the more you shrink your the sort of the horizon that you're looking at, the more focused you are and the less distracted you are and actually the better you get.
0: Yeah. So true. And one of your other books, Ego is the enemy I feel like there's something connected here because I think that we we sort of wear these like spacesuits and we think like we are these spacesuits that we wear, right? These like false selves. Some people do it through like, I have to be funny. I have to be impressive. I have to be good looking. I have to, we all have these things we do. And then it really winds up getting in the way because we compare that spacesuit to other people's spacesuits and we don't just show up and do the work we're supposed to do because we stop valuing completely. Do you know what I'm well, saying? Like there's, there's a sense of unworthiness that I was wondering how you help people be like, forget trying to do this, this, this. they that like what you have inherently is valuable. Just give it. And I don't think most people know that. Do you get what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, totally. Well, I think the mistake we make is that we associate our identity with those external results. So so it's like, if you're doing great, you feel great, which is good as long as you doing continue great. to do great. But it's inevitable that, that that streak does not continue. So like I've had books that have done really well, and I've had books that have not done well, or I've had books that took slower than expected. or And then I've had books that have you know come out out of the gate even better than expected. And like what's really key for for the stoke is that you keep sort of an even keel through the whole thing. Marcus really talks about, he's like sort of um, accept it without arrogance and let it go with indifference. Meaning that like you don't hang on to the bad things and you don't hang on to the good things because the results really don't say anything about you at all. Like if you can afford a nice car or you had to sell your car to fund your business, like neither of those things say anything about you. Like what matters is like, what you're doing day to day. And so it's just really easy i think especially in this kind of social media culture especially when you're comparing yourself to yeah. other people to get really focused on what other people are doing and to just think too much about how does this look how many followers yeah. do i have how yeah. many tweets that did this get yeah. you know and what's my amazon rank you know how many youtube views do i have those are really bad metrics cuz you don't have as much control over them as you think.
0: Yeah. And it kind of goes back to this idea that like, it's never the goal. It's who you become in the process of trying to achieve the goal, which is really what you were just saying. It's like, I just want to do the work. Like I'm in for the process, you know?
1: Yeah. And if you really love the work, Mm -hmm. no one can stop you from having, like if you really love being famous, people can prevent you from having the life that you want. If you really love writing, that's very hard to prevent you from doing, right? Or if you really love dancing, or you really love, like, it's finding a way that, like, you have the most control over Mm. your day to day fulfillment.
0: That really just hit me in the chest. I just want to pause on that because no one can stop you from that. And we so often, Ryan, I was just thinking, all the people that I get to talk to on this show, my listeners, won't do something unless it will have a result. Sure. Like I'm not going to try to play basketball unless I could be good at it. I'm not going to paint unless I would sell it. I'm not going to, but it, you're saying, but no one can take that away from you. And isn't that, isn't that worth something like yeah, the, the, do be, it the doing it?
1: The best things are the ones that you are doing because you actually like doing them and you enjoy the process and, and no one can stop you from it. But like I remember Cheryl Strade was once saying there's like a difference between writing and publishing. And a lot of people are very obsessed with publishing and not obsessed enough with writing. But if you really love writing, on the back end of that, publishing will happen, you know, eventually. Um, if you really love publishing, you're, you're obsessed with the results, and those results are are dependent on other people giving you book deals, or you know the market liking your idea, or all these other things. Mm-hmm. And that isn't what's going to put you in the chair at six a.m. You know, mm-hmm. writing about what you're supposed to be writing about.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Before we get to silence is the key, I just want you to tell one quick story from okay. and me because stories we learn things so well with stories. What about the Jackie Robinson story? How he was able to reach his goals by conquering his ego? Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean it's actually a a surprisingly similar story to the Amelia Earhart story. Like when when Branch Rickey, the manager of the Dodgers, you know, is looking for a player with which to integrate baseball. Like his main thing with Jackie Robinson was not like, do you have what it takes to be a professional baseball player? Like that was obvious. It was are you willing to put up with what you're going to have to put up with to do this thing? He says, like, I'm looking for a player, he says, with the guts not to fight back. Like, these people are going to hurl racial epithets at you. They're going to hurl baseball. Like, Jackie Robinson was hit with, like, 70 pitches in his baseball career. And he never charged the mound. He never hit another player. What he had was this sort of incredible restraint. And I think, you know, when you're in this for yourself, that's very hard to do, right? Because that person is you know, attacking you, they're insulting you, you know, you're in this sort of like a mano a kind of battle. But what Jackie Robinson realized is like, oh, this isn't about me, right? This is about this sort of larger thing that I'm trying to accomplish. And so that restraint is, I think, what, what made him like... One of the greatest baseball players of all time, and by the way, if you could see what white baseball players were getting away with at that time, it makes it like there was an incident during Jackie Robinson's career where where Ted Williams like spit on a fan that he didn't like, and so you can, you contrast that to you know the, just the abuse that Jackie Robinson puts up with because he knows what's at stake and he wasn't going to let his personal ego sort of get in the way of that. I think it just makes all the athletic feats like fifty times more impressive.
0: I mean, it's really, think about that when you think about living one day of that. I've never seen his story as like, can you not fight back because there's something bigger at stake?
1: What's fascinating about Jackie Robinson's career is that when he was a a basketball player at UCLA, like he was known for fighting back. So it's not like he was this sort of docile person. He actually gets kicked out of the army because he's told to go to the back of a bus and he gets in a fight about it. Like, it's not like, it wasn't his personality to get angry when someone would do something like that to him. But what he was able to do is go like, okay, this isn't about me. This is about what I'm trying to accomplish.
0: So how do us civilians, (laughs) uh, how do we begin to even understand what our ego is and how to like remove it from, you know, all the ways that it hurts us and hurts the world?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's when you realize that this isn't about you. That like, so in the book, I sort of talk about the making a distinction between purpose and passion. So a lot of people are very passionate, but the passionate, the passion is always about them. It's like I love doing this. Like I love public speaking. I love building yeah. businesses. I love this, and that's good. That's certainly better than not liking what you're doing, right? Like life would be boring without passion. But I think. What Jackie Robinson had, what Amelia Earhart had, what what sort of really great leaders have, is purpose and sort of larger mission. And actually, what's I don't talk about this in the book, but like the quote on Jackie Robinson's tombstone is like a life is not important except for its impact on other lives. And Jackie Robinson wasn't a great man because he was a great baseball player that, that had like marginal impact on the world. What he was great at is, is what he was able to do through the game of baseball with, with like directly with his own teammates. And then like what he was able to show the world through that experience.
0: That's amazing. You know, people are coming to this episode and they're probably like, Oh, so why is she not starting with his new book? And then you realize why people you realize why? Because like, how do we not? There's so much substance here. But let's get into it. So stillness is the key. People are going crazy for this book. Why did you want to write this book?
1: Well, so that that word stillness, like I, I don't have a good definition for it, but it's kind of one of those things that like, I think everyone kind of intuitively knows, like you've experienced moments where everything kind of slowed down, where you access something sort of deeper or more profound. Even if it was like totally ordinary, you're just like, wow, this is like wonderful. Mm -hmm. And when I was kind of thinking back to like the best moments of my life, they all had that in common, whether it was like some really great burst of writing or whether it was just like time with my kids or whether it was like, you know, sort of going out for a walk in the desert or something. And so the premise of the book is like, I think we all know that those moments are really great. And then we're we're just content for them to happen accidentally, which is really strange. That's true. Uh, the the book is like how to, how does one sort of cultivate that kind of stillness? Because I think it's important as leaders, it's important as parents, it's important as creatives, it's important as anyone who who sort of makes money from their ideas. Like we know stillness is important. But like, where does it come from? And how do we hold on to it? That's, that's sort of the idea of the book.
0: So good. And I just had a conversation with friends who were here for dinner Saturday night. We went around the table and I said, what book like changed your life? The first one, first one ever in your in your life. And I said, when I was 19, I read Siddhartha by Herman Hess. Yeah. And I didn't grow up religious. I didn't know anything about philosophy. I was just like a college kid. I read the book and I was like, oh my God, because like yeah. story about how like, the Buddha grows up in a palace. I'm going to probably botch this, but he he then goes out and he becomes an ascetic and he's like totally with those folks. But then one day he's like sitting under this tree and he feels peace. And he goes, wait, this is how I felt when I was a six-year-old just sitting, sitting in the backyard. What is this feeling? And then I think that's where he's like, I want to teach this thing to people, like how to feel this way when you're looking, when you're laying on the grass, looking up at the tree, that feeling, whatever that feeling is, we all know that feeling, but you're so right. I haven't thought about I really haven't thought about it since my friends asked me the other day. And then what you're saying, I've never thought of that. Like, why do we just let them happen accidentally or not happen? Like, why don't
1: we? Even that experience with a book, right? It's like everyone has a book that changed their life. And then you're like, so do you read a lot? And they're like, you know, sometimes, you know, like, So if we have these experiences, and yeah, sure, there's something to be lost if you're like sort of conscious, if if you're going around trying to fall in love all the time, like it's not going to happen for you. So I I get that there's like, there is an organicness to it, but just the point of like, oh, if every school, because like Buddha talks about that experience, but so does Jesus, so does Marcus Aurelius, so does Epicurus, so does Confucius. Like every ph- philosophical school talks about those kinds of moments. And then you're like, yeah, sure. Okay. So every wise person who ever lived all said that like, this is the path to peace and happiness and meaning. And I'm not going to think about that because there's like a new show on Netflix, you know, like that, that's just sort of an <laughs> attitude we have.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. When I was in college, a, a year after reading that book, I went on a free trip to Israel, which I was able to take because there was this birthright thing. If you have a one a Jewish grandparent, whatever. So I go. I'm not religious at all. Not No one, know nothing about anything. And on the very last day of the trip, this rabbi comes in who's like got cool sandals on. He looks really like cool. And he goes, do you know that the very first time the word Shabbat, which is the Sabbath is used in the Torah and the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's what Abraham is sitting at the foot of the tent. And then the angels appear. And really, it's the same word, the same word for the Sabbath, the same word we use in Hebrew when we tell people to sit. So he goes, really, this idea of the Sabbath is a 24-hour meditation. You're supposed to sit. And if you do, of course, God appears to you. Of course, you get answers. And I'm like, what did he just (laughs) say? Like, that's a thing, you know? And I was just like weak in the knees. And I'm like, whatever this is, I need more of this thing. And so I started looking into it and doing yoga. And I'm so not good and consistent with it. But I love what you're saying. And it is in every single philosophy. It goes back to that all the time. So how do we try to get more of that in our everyday?
1: Well, look, I think uh, one, of the, one of the troubles with the book is, uh, or the challenges of the book was, I was like, I'm going to write a book about stillness and I'm not going to use the word meditation. I'm not going to tell people to meditate. Because, because like- Scary you know,
0: stuff. Yeah.
1: nobody wants to so essentially yeah the, the the big argument in the book is just like that there are lots of ways to get closer to that idea. It, it could be sitting, it could be going for a walk, it could be reading a book, it could be finding a hobby. One of the favorite stories in the book is is about Winston Churchill falling in love with painting, and so the idea that like the head of the British Empire is carving out time every day to sit in a studio and paint. And he was really bad at painting. Like none of his paintings are in museums because they're good paintings. They're in museums because of what the person who painted them was able to do. Right. And so, you know, I talk about the power of hobbies. I talk about swimming. I talk about being outside. I talk about, you know, sort of going to therapy. Like, it's a thing you have to tackle from lots of different directions. But what you're kind of trying to do is eliminate the things that prevent you from having stillness. Yeah. And the truth is, it's almost amazing that anyone has any of it at all because they're glued to Twitter and they have CNN running in the background uh, all the time. And, you know, their, their phone is constantly vibrating and, you know, they, they don't keep a schedule they have bad habits in their personal life, you know, like you have systematically made that kind of peace and sitting and experiencing impossible. And then you blame like life, you go like life sucks or life's overwhelming. It's like, no, you're the problem. Like the habits that you're keeping are the problem.
0: So good. And I really, I was, I wanted to thank you for writing a book that doesn't focus on having to learn to meditate because it is I've gone down that road. I I was at the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center for years trying to become a great meditator and it it caused me so much anxiety. And yet there were moments where it was so awesome, but there was a ton of suffering involved in it for me because I was trying to do something that was a big feat. I I had new people to compare myself to. So it's great what you just said. It's very liberating. And isn't it true a lot of times that you'll see monks like Creating a mandala, or they will be like coloring or like there's so many things that can give you that peacefulness,
1: yeah, look, I think that that we we're talking about the process it's like when you get lost in something that 's when you experience yeah. it so, so so sometimes it's not doing nothing, sometimes it's doing something with everything that you have that creates a kind of nothing
0: I love that that's so good. There's just so many things and it's like ridiculous to like move on. But you guys just type it into Amazon and you'll see like how many people are jumping up and down saying, read this book and it'll bring you back home to yourself. And that's where the joy is. And that's where the ideas even come for any inspiration or whatever you're going to want to create. So I feel like we need to talk about the fact that you have two podcasts. Um, I don't know. Do you have eight days in your week? Because... It doesn't make sense to me, but... They're, they're,
1: they're not your standard podcast. Like the, the, this one you're doing here with me, this like re- requires you to invest time doing your, your pre-interview and scheduling and recording yeah. and all that. But what I do is, so I send out an email every day for Daily Stoic. So it's dailystoic.com and it's one email, a Stoic-inspired bit of wisdom, a story that will like help people in their life. And then I record that, email. I have to record a bunch of them today, but then that that's the podcast. So if there are two or three minutes of, of wisdom each day, it's simple, it's straightforward. And then I also do one, I, I started it about six or seven months ago, called Daily Dad. And so those are the two podcasts that I do. But, you know, one of your episodes is like 30 of my episodes. So right. not quite the same
0: that's, thank you for, but for, okay. But, but that's actually what I love about it. Just like my friend, Chris Gilbo, um, he can do a show every day. And I think it's great for listeners because you can get something out of five minutes. You can, you can. And, and so if you guys want an insurance policy so that you have more stillness in your life, you could say, I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to listen to daily stoic every day. It's only a few minute commitment and it'll just start to bring you back slowly, like little changes will occur, I believe. So there you
1: go. Well, thank you. Yeah. And and that's something I can think, think about if someone's like a creative or, you know, trying to like sort of build an online brand or whatever, is you don't have to do it the way that everyone else is doing. It. You can decide like, hey, this is the medium that works best yeah. for me. This is how I think it might stand out. And, and and it's just like, if you're delivering value for people, they don't really care what the form is. They they yeah, just that's,
0: yeah. that's a good point. So one thing I wanted to ask you, When you talk to your audience, what's the most consistent thing that you hear is standing in people's way?
1: That's a good question. Um, I think it's bad habits is a big one. People sort of have bad habits. They have poor routine. You know, they're they're just sort of winging it every day. And then they wonder why they fall prey to like distractions or temptations or whatever. So I think creating sort of order out of the chaos is really, really important. And that's a big one for me. And then I think the other thing is like people do get, overwhelmed by like really big goals and don't start small, which is where they they should start. So, you know, they're like, oh, I want to do this or this or that. And it's like, okay, but like, what are you doing? This ties back to habits, but like, what are you doing day to day? Like, don't think like, oh, I want to read 20 books this year. It's like, how about it's like, I'm going to read every day. And if you do it that way, James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, is really good about this. It's like starting with really small foundational habits that you build on is a much better way to go through life and, and to overcome difficulties as well.
0: Yeah. He was just here about a month ago.
1: It's great. Oh, no, that's awesome.
0: Yeah. So one other question I had for you is a lot of people in my audience, one of the things that they struggle with is like the ickiness that they feel about marketing and sales. but I love the way that you talk because you realize like there's a, there's a lot that you can get behind, but I don't think people would would think or guess that the person they just heard is also somebody who has an advisory firm which specializes in help people market and produce. And, and most people go, I can't even bear the thought of like having to think of marketing because I feel like I'm doing something duplicitous. Well, Ryan has a, has a whole life outside of all of these things where he helps people do that. So could you help us understand how you can get behind wanting to champion something and market something and do all the things that you've done well, and you don't feel gross about it?
1: Yeah, I I think it's kind of, I see him as like two consecutive marathons. So like with the book, it's like, you got to run this long, exhausting, overwhelming marathon to like get to the finish line of like having the, the finished manuscript. And then you don't get an award, you go straight to the starting line of the second marathon, which is like, how do you get anyone to care? How do you get them to hear about it? And for people who are like, oh, I I can't do it, I can't... What does that say about the work that you are not willing to do that, right? It says that you don't care or that it's not good enough or that you think you're too good for other people, right? And so like I don't feel any shame about like telling people that like I poured my heart and soul into this and that I think it's worth their time like I don't have any it doesn't make me feel weird to think okay what do I want to say and where does that overlap with what people are needing in their lives like I don't try to write these like things that are just for me I mean why would I spend all this time on it if it was just for me I could talk to myself in in shorthand right like I don't I don't need this I'm putting it in this form and I'm, I've made it my career because I understand that it's dependent ultimately on delivering value for the customer. And I think a lot of people, they say that it's like, you know, it's, I'm, that they're pure or that they're superior or whatever. I think at the core, they're just afraid.
0: It's so important what you just said. That is so important. And it does come back to that. It's like, you must not believe it's valuable. Because if you really believe that you had a medicine that can help someone else, you're going to think you're superior because you don't tell someone that the medicine is here. Like what, you, That's ridiculous. what are we doing? I mean, that could be a whole separate podcast where we talk about how to create a launch for anything, but you've done it so well. What are just a couple little things that you know that work in, in doing that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, anything that succeeds, succeeds primarily because of word of mouth. But you have to put yourself in a position where you can set that up. So um that's giving lots of stuff away for free. I think the big thing for me is like, what is the platform that you have? So still, this is the key. It was my first book to debut at number one. But that's because every day for the last three years, I've been writing this Daily Stoic newsletter. That's like three full books of content that I gave away. And so, sure, the fourth book, which was the one that actually existed, did well. But that's because I gave away three books. And so if you think about it that way, that it's about delivering overwhelming amounts of value consistently to you know, a, an audience that you have access to, the success becomes demystified very quickly. And I think when you look at most successful people, you know, people who are not, you know, movie stars that were just sort of like plucked from obscurity, and then there's a huge machine behind them. What, what all those successes have in common is that they've built sort of a tribe or a fan base or, you know, an army of people who follow their work.
0: That's it. And I'm so glad you said it. And that's why I gave you that compliment at the beginning, because other authors that we have some friends in common and that's what people have been saying is like, he's been so generous. He's been showing up and that's why this book is getting the due that it deserves because you've been putting in time. You've really been generous about it and I'm glad that you just, you, you spoke it so eloquently. But here's the thing is that a lot of people, they're not willing to do that because they take it as a rejection if they have, again, like you said early on, like when you think of years of putting in time, people think I'm going to just keep showing up and like, what am I getting back from that? And, and how do I know that's going to actually lead to anything? And, and it makes me feel bad then. And at what point then, you know, am I going to say like, what are you nuts? Like, you're going to just do this for free. And then you think one day you'll be able to make a living out of it. Like, there's so much tied to this fear of putting things out without knowing for sure what's going to come back.
1: Yeah, sure. It's it's kind of a it's kind of a lopsided relationship, certainly. Uh, and and it, like it'd be wonderful if like you know everyone was paid a living wage from day one for their creative. Right. It's just kind of not how it goes. And so I think about it more in terms of like. I really love writing. I would do it for free anyway. Like, like the sure, on the one hand, you'd be like, oh, you, you gave away three books. Like, what a bad deal or something like that, even though the math actually worked out. But I also think about it as like, I had the privilege of writing every day for an audience. And how many people are writing for no audience? And and so if you really love it, then that's going to compensate you most of the way anyway. And then if you can find a way where what you love overlaps with what the audience needs, that's where suddenly it can become both lucrative and rewarding and exciting and, and can really take off at another level.
0: So good. I love everything that you said. Um, all right, before we hop off, just tell us, so you already had, we talked about the Daily Stoic and Daily Dad is similar where it's like bite sizes. What made you want to do a podcast about being a dad?
1: Um, I just found there was like no good stuff for dads out there. It was all like super patronizing or it was all very specific. Like it's like, here's how to sleep train a two-month-old, right? Or like, here's how to get your kid into college. And I was like, I wanted much more sort of generalized inspirational advice about like how to do this really hard thing um and so the idea was just like well, look people have been dads for a really long time and they've yeah. been about it for a very long time what have they learned and i just i'm just really bullish on this daily format and so it worked well with daily stoke and so we thought all right let's give it a try with daily dad and uh yeah it's going, it's going great people and it's love it yeah, and look like I haven't made a penny off of it, but like the reward is like every day I know a huge amount of people are listening to it, and then they they know I see them and they're like, "Hey, I've kind of liked your books, but I really like this thing," and I'm, "Oh wow, that's awesome!" Like, so this is just allowing me to reach more people, and and that's I think ultimately got to be why you do what you do.
0: Yeah, eighty-seven percent of this audience is female, a lot of moms, right. and I'm sure they really appreciate that you're creating something for dads because no husband wants to hear anything from their wife. But like right now, my husband is like right now with my kids and I love that, right? And I love that he's Mm -hmm. finding his sort of his own way and his own path. And we live in a time where the culture is definitely changing and dads are so much more hands-on, so much more involved. They care so much about these things in a way because of what's happened, right? Women now are not, the only one in the house. And so there's more of a shared partnership and dads are much more in touch with their feelings. It's like a whole new world and we need tools and we need this conversation. What are some of the things that when you first started it, you were like, I hope that I could do this because I want, I would like for dads to have more of this or I want them to feel more this way. Yeah.
1: You make a great point. I think what's really happened is like the expectations of dads has like gone way up. <laughs> right. Like, like it was like, my dad would be considered a good dad because he like came to soccer games. That mm-hmm. would be like, that's like the, it. And like his dad, it would be like, totally. as long as he like got a job and didn't end up homeless, that was success. And then a generation before that, it was like, if your kids didn't die, you were like a pretty good dad. Yep. You know, <laughs> the expectations have gone way up, but there really aren't any tools. There really aren't any good reminders or there isn't like a process for like learning and exploring and being reminded of it mm-hmm. and instead of going like hey you're supposed to read what to expect when you're expecting when you know your kid's mom is pregnant this is more like hey just read this five-minute thing every morning and every morning it will give you some you know reminder from a great athlete or a great entrepreneur like Mm you know just give you some insight from someone who's been where you've been before and sort of help you think about these things differently and so I mean I'm doing it as much for myself as for the listeners and so that sort of goes to the point about whether you're doing it for free or not like I know I've become a better dad and a better writer for having done this thing every day for six months and so yeah it's just been awesome Some to hear from people who've liked it.
0: What's one thing that you feel like you've learned that you carry with you, go back to a lot that helps you be a better dad?
1: Yeah, there's this, uh, one of the ones I talk about the most often, there's this poster, there's a poem that John Wooden would keep on his wall. And I think the title is like, A Little Fellow Follows You. And it's this poem about how like, there's this kid uh, walking in his dad's footsteps on the beach. And the idea was you're supposed to be remembering all the time that there's always someone uh, watching you and that they're learning for you. So that was a big one. And then the other big one that I think about the most often, uh, we, we wrote this email about Jerry Seinfeld. And, and Jerry Seinfeld was, he was like, I hate quality time. He's like, I like garbage time. And he's like, the idea that like being a dad is setting up these special moments, like going to Disneyland or, you know, like w- whatever it is that's actually what causes like stress and anxiety. Like the quality time is like, Sitting on the couch watching TV or like staying up later than you're supposed to, or, you know, like the drive to school. It's the everydayness of it that is the quality. And so I I just took a lot from that as well.
0: That's so, so good. I think if I'm not mistaken, I think Seinfeld was Jimmy Fallon's first guest when Jimmy Fallon started his talk show. Letterman. He was Letterman's first guest. Yeah. Either way, he was on Fallon in the recent years yeah. when Fallon started his show. And he's like, what's it like being a dad? And this is like a few years ago when his yeah. kids were a little younger. And he's like, well, bedtime takes three hours. He's like, yeah. the routine is like, this, the circle of emotions, and then we go into this, the stories and the songs. And I have three kids, so he's like, it's like a three hour situation. Yeah. He goes, "When I was a child, the bedtime routine was darkness. It was like good night, <laughs> turn off a light, and I'll never That's forget good. it." And he loves yeah. being a dad, and he's always like talking about being a yeah. dad. So I love that you just also um, bookmarked that idea of like garbage time. Yeah, right? you're so good in everything. Just tell us where we can find you, where we can get your books, where we can get all the things.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah. You're very, you're very kind. So, uh, books are everywhere. Books are sold. My website is ryanholiday.net. Then daily dad is DailyDad.com, and daily stoic is DailyStoic.com.
0: It's so good, Ryan. Keep doing what thank you do. You.
1: No, this was amazing. Thank you.
0: How amazing is Ryan? So much good stuff in there. Okay. Here are the takeaways. Number one, we don't control anything outside of us, but we control what we do with that. Make the best out of what you have in front of you. Number two, focus on the process. Just do your job and the immediate task in front of you. Number three, accept it without arrogance and let it go with indifference. Keep an even keel. Number four, it's not about you. It's about the larger thing you accomplish. Number five, a life is not important except for its impact on other lives. Number six, eliminate things that prevent you from having stillness. Don't wait for it to happen accidentally. Number seven, sometimes it's doing something with everything you have that creates a kind of nothing. And number eight, if you're not willing to share what you're doing, what is that saying about the work you did? Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm so clear that you have a million things you could be doing with your time. I know you're very busy. It means the world to me that you're here. We have so many great episodes coming up. So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a review so we can keep making the show better and better. I would love it if you could share this episode with a friend, tell them whatever your favorite episode is. Tell them how this show is changing your life, how it's changing what you believe is possible. If it's helped you realize that you're worthy, if it's helped you realize that you get to be there to serve other people. Let's get more souls to shine and light up this world. If you guys want to apply for my retreat, we have 18 spots for the next glow retreat, which starts March 8th at my home in Los Angeles. We will be taking applications for the next two weeks. So you can find the link in my Instagram bio, which is at Kathy.heller. or you go to the show notes and you can click on the application and you can apply. We'll be taking 18 women only. And I cannot wait. It is always one of my most favorite things that I ever get to do. I love you guys so much. I'll leave you the song of mine, and I'll talk to you Thursday. The podcast is a production of Authentic. For more info on advertising in this show, visit AuthenticShows.com. So many
1: times I chose to run. So many times
0: I held my tongue. I held my tongue. Never saying what I needed.